0: Hey, this is another episode of Montage Through Cinema. Um, this is a second interview with Zach Crossway on the same day. Um, Zach?
1: Yo, yo, yo. <laughs>
0: uh, I have a new set of questions for Zach, and uh, I'm just going to start right off. So um, another thing that we talked about recently that I want to bring up on the, um, on the podcast is we kind of talked about um, the... The way titles work in experimental film, and to get into that, I'm going to actually start talking about how I think about titles. So I kind of believe that titles are a way to bring either emphasis to an element of the story, um, maybe to help um, tie together a theme, like completely not not in its entirety, but in in fill in the blanks here and there. Um, Maybe to add a a foreboding element, like There Will Be Blood, maybe. Um, Or to tell you what the film's about, like um, another movie, like maybe Ghostbusters or something like that. So, I mean, where there might be a film... I'm trying to think of an example where, like, the film kind of helps point out elements of it. Maybe... um, I think about a film that like really t- gives away it's like meaning maybe or something it like that a through, through a title movie. but it's not like more of a contemporary film mm-hmm. I don't, I can't think of one right now but it's definitely not iRobot um, yeah, there's a lot of different titles for so sure. so I don't know what you think about let's start talking about like what do you think about the idea that like you use film, you use titles in a certain way I think I like the idea of bringing of titles being able to bring emphasis to an element of the film, mm-hmm. um, so usually I would title a film, maybe like the the film I made, the Aardvark. That is to bring emphasis to the song, the Aardvark. Um, but that that kind of loses that that movie's a little weird. This title actually, maybe more like one of my films. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm talking about my films, but it's. Because I created a film I can talk about it's title yeah, yeah. more and more you know clearly and through line um so the film nostalgia um the reason we titled it that was because one the there's an experiment in that film where you if you put a mask on it makes you go through your memories and relive them to affect your current mood and your current uh, mental state so that film, um, it's called Nostalgia for that reason because you're doing that and then the, the experiment's about that. But then also it's about kind of, it kind of goes into the theme too. So it's like, okay, it's about like you looking through your memories and how, how, like, how looking back on memories really does affect you, how your prior life experiences makes you who you are today and whether you can allow those memories to form you And it's, in your whole, like, because I was, because I lived a horrible life, that means I, I'm allowed to be aggressive and, um, stubborn. But maybe it doesn't. Um, so that was what, that's what nostalgia was about. But one, one thing you told me about your film, Liberty... of
1: for Liberty and Ice. Yes.
0: So, of course, me (laughs) and Zach make very, very different films, um... So tell me about how you kind of utilize titles and maybe mm. talk about *For Liberty and Ice*. Yeah,
1: uh, so in the case of *For Liberty and Ice*, that's a film of shots exclusively of the of the city of Chicago, and I wouldn't say that it's shots of like buildings that are recognizable. I mean, there's a shot of what is what was the the Sears Tower; it's now the Willis Tower. Um, there is one shot that it's in there, but I think you can't really. I don't think it's obvious that I have a shot of like such a known building. I have a shot in the very beginning of the film of. Um, like a statue, which is also a statue, people don't really know. I didn't know who it was, um, and I believe it's a person that convinced a lot of Chicagoans to be part of the Union versus going to the Confederacy in the Civil War. And this is a statue at Grant in Grant Park. So, as far as naming that film and naming the films I make, I don't really have a lot of words in my movies. So it's not like I have a whole script of like 120 pages, and then there's. A line or a, you know the the embodiment of all the lines leading to a, a grand like there will be blood there will be blood is never said in there will be blood but yeah. uh or magnolia is never said in magnolia <laughs> so paul thomas anderson's a good example of someone who uses titles that aren't directly out of the film's vocabulary yeah. but a lot of films that you that's how it works that there's something that's said in the movie and it can be one of the first things said it can be one of the main things said uh, and that's like the title, or there's a there very poetic moment in the film that angles what the film is is called. So in my films, because there's no words, I have to, like we're talking about with uh, emphasis, I have to angle an audience in such a way that it isn't like I'm saying, like, this is what the movie is, um, but it's also not like I'm saying this is not what it is. So it's a very bizarre Phenomena, right? I had a very long conversation with my friend Nick Swanton about this like years ago. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about, because um, he was kind of criticizing my titles, which I, I disagreed with um, based off of what he was saying. It wasn't like an overly bad conversation, yeah. it was a great conversation because we were figuring out like why do you title things. And his position is very strictly you title the film first and then you go about making the film, wow. which I disagree with. And I think he disagrees with. And that, I think that's where our disagreement kind of. Manifested was that I don't think he really believed it, but that's kind of what he was pushing to me because I title my films last I like shoot everything and I don't write anything before I go and I shoot and I figure out the film through the shooting You have a working title? uh, Sometimes only if I like end up showing it before it's like totally done editing, but that's very rare Usually there's like no title until the end so usually what happens is I shoot and I don't shoot off of anything I've written I shoot off of what I would like to go about getting on camera, right? Like I made a film called Exact Periphery, and the ambition of the film—you can say the fetish of the film—not like in a, in a sexual sense, but in a um, in a very odd filmmaker sense of like something I would want to have in a film of mine—is it's it's a series of women that I kind of knew sitting in front of the camera and staring <laughs> at it, and I just had the ambition to bring women up to my room, sit them down in a chair, and put the camera there, and then just leave the room. So I guess part of the ambition with that wasn't that I was trying to expose exactly how quickly it can take someone without giving any kind of durational limit, saying, oh, you're gonna be here for four minutes, stare at the camera for four minutes. No, I would just leave, and they would be stuck there. I'd say, stare at the camera, and I'd leave. And they could get up if they wanted, because they're, they can't, they can do whatever they want, right? Yeah. They're giving me their time as it is and they can also not do that. So it's like it's like this fine line of am I like abusing their time by not really telling them what they're doing and then having them stare at a camera or not. And I think it's more like an abuse but it's very 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 small abuse that is reasonable by any definition. Like no one can say that I'm a horrible guy for <laughs> making women stare at a camera for 5 minutes at a time without telling them how long it would be. But that's exactly it is the question of is that abuse or what even is that? So as far as that film came along, Us came about, and it certainly has to do with my relationship with those women to an extent, that's subtextually there. Um, but it's also just about uh, me with women and also the that idea of, um, and that's why it was called Exact Periphery in the end, was it's kind of this, it's like a contradiction because your periphery your peripheral is like out of the side of your eyes and it's like what you can m- make out vaguely. Um, And exact is like exact, and it's there. So to me, exact periphery came about the title because I am putting very central uh, people, and specifically women, that's for me in my life, and also these women in my life, that I I couldn't fix and I couldn't get them to just sit. So to that extent, it was like a a very odd pursuit that I would want to take um, women and put them in a chair and make them stare at the camera. And again, it's not like sexual, it's not that obvious, right? It's even more, it's even more vague it's even more vague about it's even more vague in the sense that i like i'm saying i want to fix them i want to just observe and i i want to observe because i don't i would like to say that i don't understand women and i think that's partly because i am a man and i understand men and i understand how men would act in that situation does that
0: not understanding of women come to why it's called periphery
1: a little bit yeah and i think that also has to do with it's you know, an under- um, understanding you you do understand women but you don't really understand women that well I yeah yeah no you that's certainly kind of can and that's the other thing too that is really interesting about the film is I don't I've had people tell me like they weren't well, they didn't even think about how it was only women um, in the chairs because there's other sections within the film that have me or other uh, people but vaguely you know like you see people kind of pass by or you hear people around but it's not like you see anybody else aside from when I actually fix the women so mm-hmm. Again, it's not because I I have a very... There's not like there's a major space between me understanding them, but it's that that is the representation of the space, is that I can still put them in a chair and I still don't know what they're thinking or going through. And, And it's also not just like... I mean, you know, that film is very complicated because, like I'm saying, I'm calling it exact periphery. And can you really have an exact... Periphery, and I don't think you really can. But that's kind of the idea. Is so you that, can't have an exact understanding of women. Yeah, you can't have an exact understanding of what's in your peripheral. And I'd say within the society, it has to do with how we look at each other. You can't just stare at guys or women. And I'm, you know, I'm attracted to women in that sense. Um, that yeah, I, and I, I do think it's it's reasonable to say that women are they look good and they look like they should be looked at, right? But within the society, you're not really allowed to just. Look, you kind of have to look and then look away, and that's fine. I'm not saying that's the end of the world. It's not like you're illegal. It's not like illegal to look at some woman you don't know in the eyes or something. But it certainly is uh, an incredible opportunity for a camera to do that for you to angle a film around it if you can have their time within film school, and that's kind of what happened. Is they were all willing to do it, and none of them hated the experience. None of them said like you know you're horrible or anything. I still see some of them around, but. Uh, and it wasn't, like I'm saying, it's not like abuse, but it was a place, it was something that was untapped and unregistered. Because like I'm saying, you don't just, even if you're attracted to anybody in this world, guy or girl, but I would say specifically for me, women, you can't just like put them down and just stare at them and try and figure them out. And not try. And that's not sexual either, that's like figure them out, like an interest, like a, like what are they, like what is, what is femininity, right? So all the women in my film have long hair. None of them have short hair. All of them have very long hair, and they all kind of like lean in their hair, and they're kind of hidden in their hair. And it, it, So it is a question of what is femininity. And I'd, I'd say in this era, it's, it's a very special work um, because I'm fixing something that people are taking for granted, and people want to destroy it. People want to obliterate the fact that there are differences between men and women, and differences that are all right, that manifest in what we're interested in. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that film does have to do with that. It has to do with seeing that difference and also not being like obvious with it. Not like, you know, throwing a football at a series of guys and throwing a football at a series of women and seeing how many of the women catch it versus the guys. Like that's like a, a thought experiment. No. I'm just putting them there and I'm allowing for people to access their cultural baggage and figure out why my film, why the film is troubling or why it isn't. And it's weird. It's like a weird in between. Like I thought I would be people would be very angry about that movie. But no one really, no one really was upset. It was more just that it was some weird experimental film. But I thought I was gonna be uh, attacked for abuse for some reason, which I didn't like hurt them. It's just that I asked for their patience. And I was kind of, I, let's, I, let's I, say I was rude about getting the patience, but it was more like me seeing if how that would manifest, if they would. And you know, one girl uh, named Marissa, she got up and left at one point. And she came downstairs and she said to me, Am I, was I supposed to get up and come get you or something? And I just laughed. I was like, sure, you know? So that's in the film, is there's a shot when everybody's sitting for like 30, 35 minutes. It's also a durational piece, so you're there too. These women are having a tough time sitting and staring as you, the audience member, is having a difficult time sitting film, and you don't, staring. You don't, you don't give the context to the viewer that you have left the room. Right, no, that context is not, it's not obvious, but I think the... I think what is powerful about cinema, and this is what I've been told with other, other films I've made, is that you can kind of figure it out, like I'm saying. If you're like kind of like staring, and you're kind of falling asleep, and you're kind of out of it, and you're aimlessly watching a, a durational piece of cinema that isn't narratively obvious, and you see the person you're looking at is doing the exact same thing you are, you can figure it out. Like I think you can figure it out because it's uncanny. So they were falling asleep. They were having a brutal time they were really like kind of if you look if you like go through the film there's there's a lot of different types of shots of of them really having uh the women that, that are in the film sorry uh of the women that are in the film having a having a different difficult time doing that task and i'd say anyone men or women would have a tough time having no aim and being made to sit indefinitely because i didn't say when they could have just thought mm. all right he's gone maybe i'm going to make them sit for like 25 minutes but no it was it was only like five or seven right so how quickly does not just specifically women but do people fall off the edge of despair in our current age and how does that manifest when they're not explicitly told how long they're supposed to be waiting and i i i am someone that gets a lot of anxiety from that um like if you order if i order a pizza and it's just not I, like, freak out if I, like, don't know when, if it's just like, yeah, I'll be by later. If someone messages me, I'll be by later. Mm. I can't do that. It has to be a time, and then I have to know that you were either late or you were early. And I think a lot of this era has to do with just no structure, no, like, organization. Because of the phone. Yeah, because of the phone. Because it's very easy to access each other, but it's also very very difficult to actually keep in touch with people and have a regimented organized schedule yeah. so it wasn't was, you know, maybe that also was reflected was uh, that dissatisfaction over the years of best messaging not just women but also men and trying to organize and having people not answer their phones and so part of that anxiety manifests in making a woman sit and have no idea when I'm going to come back and tell them what's going on Right, so that's kind of how the title came about. Is exact yeah. periphery because it still is fleeting and it still is peripheral, and it it's exact because they're in front of the camera, but it also is gone, like so the film ends.
0: One interesting thing about I think experimental films is like every experimental film or maybe more avant-garde films, they have these titles that are like. Can you give me a few like, other experimental? titles? Well, I mean, like there's like there's um, they have titles that are very uh, what is it called. Uh, uh, pompous or
1: pompous? You mean intellectual or
0: no? no, 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 no I'm, I'm I'm saying pretentious. Like pretentious. P- people view it as pretentious. Here's what mm. I'm saying. Yeah. The the thing is the and I and I believe that too but, uh, for a time. But um, when I was listening to you, I was realizing it's not pretentious because it's literally a tool to film, and it's kind of like um. It's like, like l- reading um, important clock. Work like important cogs of a that make a watch work, and and placing those into words, and like you you'll have these titles that are like uh, very long. The only one I can think of is like um, Birdman has that subtitle, which is like oh, yeah, the yeah. unexpected, something of ignorance. virtue of ignorance, yeah, virtue of ign- ignorance. and you'd say that that title pretentious, but but for maybe an experimental film that has less maybe um, content or like. Um, the vocabulary that uh, audiences try to participate in it are, is not the vocabulary that it, they're accustomed to. So you have a very pretentious, you end up with a pretentious title, seemingly pretentious title, because you need that. You need that to accomplish what you want to do. And that's why there's the stereotype, I guess, about right. experimental films with their titles, mm-hmm. that they're very long, that they have um, mm-hmm.
1: long form adjectives or, yeah. you know. And I'm also just annoyed by the taboo of uh, of concentrated and intelligence in our concentrated intelligence in our society and it appears to me like the more sophisticated presentation of words is the better is for the better and it's always for the better and i don't i don't feel like i'm mm. more uncomfortable by using less precise words and so part of that has to do with when i was growing up i just figured out that if you speak as as specific and as concentrated as you can and to the best of your abilities, people don't like that. Like you have to speak lower. You have to speak like, yo, what's up, man? How's it going? Like you don't just say, Oh, well, I was approaching this structure, and and you don't you don't phrase it. And sure, there's places for different types of language, but yeah. within cinema, that should be the most concentrated effort. So okay. when you use the word pretentious, um, or people see, seeing something as pretentious, I think the fear is that. If you're gonna watch a film like I made a, for our directing class, I made a film called "The Cycle of Baron and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. which is a really wild ass title because it's like I think it's kind of funny too. I'm the kind of person that like I understand this that there's one? a comedic element to yeah, okay. if you name something very heavy-handed, and that film, you know, I mean, it's kind of obvious. I mean, the title's and, fitting. Yeah, Absolutely. I think the title. I think the title is fitting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know I, I maybe it's not one of my favorite films that I've made or one of my favorite titles but it there's certainly a specificity to it that I think people are more willing to respond to than they at first than they'd at, they would at first um, think you know and as far as experimental cinema goes what's very difficult because uh, you know I wouldn't even say I wouldn't even go as far to say I, I'm experimental like that's not like where it starts is me making experimental films i'm making films mm-hmm. but i can understand how it's categorized as experimental and i accept that that they are experimental films you know i'm like not going to lie and say oh it's not experimental or they're not radical the films i make are as radical as you possibly can make and that's also my pursuit is that they're furthest from the center of mm-hmm. cinema as possible um well obviously not being like garbage and that's kind of what language gives you is that it is the preciseness of language in the absence of it. So why do you think we title things like,
0: when When Birdman could be mm-hmm. the unexpected virtue of ignorance, and maybe that's why maybe the director really pushed for that, why is it Birdman? Is it for commercial, like like a movie, like, um, I'm trying to think of a more sophisticated movie that has like a very simplistic title. Trying to, like, why, why don't these films have titles that are as close to The Baron, forgot the title, The Baron.
1: Yeah, The Cycle of Baron Introspection. <laughs> yeah, why don't we have that? Why aren't more titles like that? Yeah, is it, is it well, commercial, is it? Yeah, I mean, commercial, it's like what, Terminator 2, or, I, I mean, there's a filmmaker named James Gray who, who had a, who talked about, you know, there's a film called Horrible Bosses 2, and it's like, yeah, it's about horrible bosses, and this is the <laughs> second one, and it's, it's, it's lazy also, because that film isn't trying to like, engage in a discourse or put something into the realm of discourse um and like i'm saying about kind of a cheap wisdom of cinema it's not trying to give you an hour and a half that is really earned therapy for all the people involved that like comes out as like a like like i'm saying like a cheap wisdom for people to access no it's like a commodity and it's something that they're selling very cheaply and you you need to know what it is and you know that it's like, you know, it's a comedy and it's about yeah. horrible bosses. And it's like, oh, I have a horrible boss. Let me go laugh at the fact that other people have horrible bosses. But so then on that, top of that there's like a theme that's trying to teach you something, which which is half assed maybe. I think vague. I, I think vague, that the okay. and it's vague and it's immature because uh, those type of comedies aren't really that's not like where they start. They start in the sense that you get the stars and you start in the sense that it's like funny and it's for it's for servicing laughter. It's not for um, what a great stand-up comic would do is kind of trick you into giving you wisdom mm-hmm. through the fact that you're laughing. So you're laughing as they're giving you wisdom to the world, right? Mm-hmm. So as far as like you know, titles and stuff, and in, in, in experimental cinema, it is important to also know that if you make a film and there's very few words, that the title is the only thing people are going to be thinking about the entire film. Like, if there's one phrasing of words that someone would have in their head when watching a film of mine, it would be the title. And it's because there's very few other words. And I understand that, and I think that that also lends itself to being understood. Also, I don't think it's impossible to understand, you know, Smiles of the Conqueror is another film that I made. Um, and that that's the title, Smiles of the Conqueror. And that none of that language is used in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can, you can look at the words, and you can deep deconstruct it, right? And that's how I, I build it, is I build it to be deconstructed by the highest efforts. I don't make my films to be understood by everybody. I make them for people to go to them and go to them at the highest capacity they can, because from a therapeutic sense, I'm building them up to the highest capacity I can, so I can understand myself to the highest capacity I can. Um, so... When you talk about titles, why not just <clears throat> maybe
0: have the words under the screen the whole time if they're that important? Why not have the titles repeated uh, in, a, in a voiceover throughout the whole film? Um,
1: well, it's just because I don't think people are that uh, dumb. I don't think you need to really remind audiences mm-hmm. of what they know. And that's something I feel like is very uh, poisonous within cinema culture, is to think that an audience. And it's poisonous within culture that we think that people forget, and we think that, oh, we like re- didn't remember or something. But I don't think that's true. I think everybody can remember everything. That's my position. And I think that's a position that's also taboo because people will say, oh, I like forgot. It's like, no, you didn't, you know? No, you didn't. It is oh, it is weak. If, if In this world, if you forget, that is weak. And you should feel bad about it. And You should never forget. You should always remember almost everything. And that should be your goal as a, as a conscious person when you're conscious, not when you're like asleep, but when you're fully awake and trying to build up your consciousness and trying to be not just intelligent, but conscious, like aware. It should be about knowing with certainty as much as you can and having an organizational structure that you can call attention to. So the cinema is a venue in which we can build up our consciousness and also our memory. And I'm someone that can attest to that, that can say through the films that I've seen and through seeing films a lot and through trying to remember them, I have, lengthened my memory, and I have made it stronger and more durable. And it's not like I I have the best memory. Um, I have a very – well, I have, like, the best memory. But it's not like originally I would say as a child I just had an incredible, unparalleled memory, you Mm know. No, I think it – like, I worked at it. I really sincerely believe that. I I feel like people – they know more than they think they 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 know more than they want people to think they do, and that's dishonest. And I it's hard for people to hear that that they're being dishonest with what they actually know and what they actually remember. And I would say everybody remembers everything, so, and it's just a lie if you say you don't. What if a doctor,
0: um, a very a physician or maybe even a surgeon, mm-hmm. very knowledgeable in medical terms, very knowledgeable in like they know the arguments of if this um, type of Therapy or this type of surgery is positive or negative in, in a various amount of scenarios. Like we should do this kind of. They're very a very good surgeon, I'm saying, but they just have a problem where they just really don't remember movies. I met a lot of people that are like top of their game in whatever career path they've gone into, mm-hmm. but they don't. They they lack a memory of films. They don't really remember film titles. They remember actors more. And I think it's because well, of condition too. Yeah, and actors. you know
1: part of it too is that. There there's a certain amount of stuff that you, you in your direct life have to remember. And I'm someone that have always thought I need to remember films and I like need to like do it. So I have a very great memory for cinema. And I have a great memory for not necessarily for literature. Like I don't remember like sentences very well. I remember like narrative I remember what I see and what I hear very, very well. Um, I think naturally I'm very inclined to that. But I've also worked to remember literature. So how I read a book is that I annotate because I know that when I highlight and I annotate in the margins, that allows for me to have an access point. And that's just learning how you remember stuff. And I feel like everybody has to go about, especially with the stuff they need to know, learning how they're actually gonna remember it. And that's also idiosyncratic and nuanced, to to actually get information and remember it and not just go, oh yeah, I'll say it three times and I'll know it. Because that's not true. That's not how you build up your memory. You have to know that it's like I thinking. Know, here it's, here it's, I'm yeah, because it's un, it's uncanny, right? It's that you know this this director or there's an editor of this film, and I know who that is because that's like a friend of mine's uncle that passed away or something, right? That's how you remember it, and that's how you have to remember because it just it's it's like where it will most appear is connected. So, it's like it's like part of, partly giving yourself incentive. Like if I have to remember something, I have to know how that's gonna like come mm-hmm. about like what is the personal setting in which I'm going to have to remember it and the entry setting is like you know class assignments or something like yeah. I just remember getting assigned stuff because I know that's something I have to remember and I will be asked or I will be forced to do it so there's like a an organization of what should be in the top of your memory or like lower or whatever um, and this sounds very abstract but I, I just think that's how you build yourself up in the world so you're talking about remembering class assignments without writing an agenda Yeah, yeah, I don't really write anything in an agenda. I mean, I'll look on the computer to see for sure, but I, like, yeah, I certainly think you can, and that's also what people do. You can certainly, like, misremember stuff intentionally. Like, if I ever forget to do an assignment, I, like, feel just like I kind of did that on purpose, right? Because I just don't want to do it. Um, Which, again, I'm not going to say, like, I have a perfect memory or I'm always going to remember stuff. And there's certainly plenty of stuff that you just go, yeah, no, I, like, I like don't want to do it, so I'm pushing it out of my mind or whatever. Mm. Um, but overall, that should be the thing: is you shouldn't people shouldn't just give up. They shouldn't just say, "Oh, well, I'm like this." So, in any case, you should always be building to, to the best version. So, when someone like I might meet somebody, um, one of the, one of the good examples
0: is like I have a you know uh, a family member can't ever remember titles, but they're like, "That's me." Don't remember titles. Mm-hmm. You should be like, "Oh, like." don't let that be
1: you, like, yeah, remember, yeah, well, remember, remember movies, remember it's, Well, it's awkward too, because especially when people want to like, if people want to know like cinema, for instance, there's really no excuse, and you can't really tell people, like this is going to our whole thing about criticism, you can't really tell people unless they know you well, that they're not doing a good job like in their life, because that's like rude, you mm-hmm. know? So it's not like I'm telling people, like you have to remember, right? It's just that I don't, I'm not very forgiving, um... And forgiving in, like, the way that most people are. Like, if you, like, fall asleep and we're supposed to hang out or something, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to be like, sure, you know, that's my reaction is sure. Like, that's annoying. It's not, oh, he fell asleep, whatever. And a lot of people do that. They kind of laugh stuff off and they – but, no, we have to, like, hold each other accountable to some degree. And, you know, you don't torture someone. But that must be them. stressing you. Oh, yeah, all the bit. time. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's stressing me, but I think that's how you actually succeed in the world is you – you, you uh, what's the term? you actually embrace all the stress you can and then just manage it, you know? Like if someone is gonna message you, you answer. Even if it's like, oh fuck, like now I have to get into a long conversation with this person, it's like, no, you answer and if they write again, you just answer when you can and it's unfortunate you can't like answer right away or whatever, but you can't just get, you can't just get buried in the avalanche of text messages you're not responding to. That's just really debilitating to yourself mentally. Um, and so organizationally that's certainly what happens in experimental cinema that you have these things that can angle it and you're allowing for people to forget it if they want but there's only like a title and there's no words so how are they really gonna like forget it and if they wanna go back they can go and click or they can figure it out some other way so again I don't really I don't really pander to that type of thing that someone's gonna forget it's like this is what is there and you can access it and if you Don't quite access it the first time you can go back and you don't need to but it's that's still there right you don't need to do anything in this world but you shouldn't just go to people for the fact that they don't want to come to you and i think that's true within personal relationships and i also think that's very true in cinema that the great works aren't just going to people they're not just going to like an eight-year-old and bringing the eight-year-old into the film they're existing and then they're there for people to access because they are observations and because they they should be these these testaments to mm. the world they should be almost made out of stone and able to be observed and observed through eras and they shouldn't stand up in the sense that they're going to people of a specific era in a specific cultural Phenomena. They should be standing as large as they can within all of the cultures and all of the eras to be accessed. Because that's how a film ages well, is that it's not going to you know, any one of 10,000 fads and fashions that comes about within cinema or within the world. You're not just going to make like a, like a superhero movie. You don't just yeah. make a superhero movie because it gets the biggest audience. You know? Because no one's going to watch those films. In a very recent amount of time, because people watch the most recent superhero movie they don 't get together and watch Spider-Man. All of... yeah, no one does that i like i 'm in film school and I like only hear about people seeing the new superhero movie i don 't mm-hmm. hear about people getting together in their place and watching Avengers or whatever maybe you do, but i 've never even heard that from friends I have all over all over the world like you know all the people i 've ever met no one says they say that for other films it'd well, be
0: interesting to ask somebody who is really into like superhero movies and whether or not they they do do that but i mean talking about um what is it the idea of like movies and longevity i you know it's interesting that like there are like nobody really knows about ship even though that is kind of the through line of what everyone kind of bases editing and um I don't know chronological editing Mm -hmm. on off of uh, our intercutting. Yeah, people don't really um, understand that until like I didn't even know about the film until I think. Well, I I knew about the film in uh, senior year of high school. I don't know when you did. When did you know about the film?
1: Um, I had read about it freshman year of high school. I think I saw it freshman
0: year. So, but the thing is, that is like forever going to be a part of history. Mm -hmm. But one thing that's like really interesting to me is actually like animated movies, like. Snow White. Isn't it weird that, like, Battleship Potemkin is kind of, like, the first, like, film of its kind? And then Snow White is the first feature animated film, but one of them is watched by its kind of audience more. Snow White is still, you know, being Mm re-released. Because Disney's a whole different entity, of course. But um, whereas Battleship Potemkin fades to the background, Snow White stays relevant. Mm -hmm. And people still think about it and it comes up in media and it's because it again because Disney makes video games it makes um you know clothes and costumes and it has all this but um as you're talking about like you know the longevity it, it is true in some cases like like but Bachelor Patinkin is like Barely watched. I think mm-hmm. it is. Like, it, people are forced to watch it in like uh, like world, world cinema and film school. Uh, I had a friend who went to Temple University in Pennsylvania, and he said he watched it about four times in different in four different classes because it's such a basic yeah, yeah thing to watch. But like, whereas um, Snow White informs one pop culture and two every kid that's into animation Bowser Potemkin does not which is interesting to me
1: well yeah and I mean that's just a matter of like I'm saying with audiences it's not necessarily like you know the end of the world and I think it's like if we could almost um, so it's, it's not bad to access the largest audience across time and I do think Snow White accesses the largest audience across time but I don't think that's because of its form I don't think that's because of its observation I think it's because it's drawn from an archetypically powerful fairy tale. That's what Disney does is they draw from even more unconscious stories that we all have about like the hero's journey type of things, right? Or, you know, fighting the dragon to like save the damsel. Like that's, that's not bullshit. That's like an ancient story. So Snow White is part of ancient stories that are in our collective memory. Um, so that's why that film is responded to so well. And you know, the reason why Potemkin has been made To be seen still and the reason why it's it should still be seen is because like i'm saying with consciousness and stuff it is an attempt to build up this consciousness to stand tall you know and stand tall within what it is and it's a political film it's not like it's a fairy tale it's like about these sailors mounting their resistance and you see like the flag and red and all that type of thing and it it is about conveying this type of resistance that has to do with the cinema. and It's almost implicating the cinema as a political tool, you know, and as a social tool, but you could say as an artistic tool. So I think it's a great film. I wouldn't say that that's um, necessarily the best example of a film that I feel like really stands up through history. I mean, it does because people are still watching it. I think that should also be brought up right now is that it's like one out of 10 of every silent film ever made still exists. 90% of mm. every silent film doesn't exist anymore because they just were burned. Yeah. And burned because no one gave a fuck and they also were highly flammable. So the fact that Battleship Potemkin is still seen at all does prove that it, it is still seen. You know, Even though it's not like seen by everybody in our culture, it's still seen. And I think that's another brutal aspect of standing up within history, that you don't just stand up For everybody, forever. It's like, and you can say Snow White, but you can also make the claim that, like, you know, Achilles or whatever, or some of the ancient uh, myths and fairy tales that people know, that those are ever present in their mind and continually reaccessed. Like, I wouldn't say everybody is continually reaccessing the ancient myths, even though they all know them. And when a movie is made that utilizes them, they go and they see them and they say, that was great, and I don't know why. But it's because it's accessing the myths that they know very well and they're not present in their mind, like Star Wars, you know, like the recent Star Wars is like, you know, good and evil. It's like the split of the soul, you know, it's like two, you're, you're one person and your soul could go to the bad side or the good side. And that's how we acclimate ourselves um, to the world. That's how people build themselves up is through knowing that you can go in different directions, but you're still a centered body. And that's, again, that's, that's an issue of building your consciousness up. Um, but like I'm saying, as far as cinema is concerned, it still is a brutal idea that like, it's not like you can ever make a film that is always watched forever the most. Like that's not, that's not really doable. It's that you can make films that, that stand and they can be accessed and really forever. They should be there forever. Like Battleship Potemkin is one of those films that is still standing very large in the history of the world, in the history of cinema. And like I'm saying, it's not that it's it's less seen than Snow White. I mean, it'd be hard to like describe that. And of course, these terms are very hard to like specify and get accurate on how many people are watching what film and what eras and in what locations of the world. Um, but as I'm saying, with standing up in history, it's still there, and that's still like the mark. It's like that, you know, the Coliseum is still in and whatever rome or something or or structures that were built thousands of years ago still exist just because you're not thinking about them doesn't mean that they they don't exist it just means that there are a very specific amount of people that do go to them it's just not everybody but everyone knows it's there you know it's like everyone kind of has an idea but it still is the people that go and do it that do it and i think within art within um culture that's important to, to make work as an artist, to make work that stands up so strong that it's not as if you're being the most popular forever, it's that you're making something that will truly last. And even to get some film students' eyeballs on Battleship Potemkin in 2018 I think would blow away Sergei Eisenstein, That he that his film has lasted as long as it has. I think he would be truly moved by that even though maybe the audience members aren't rallied and excited like they used to be by Battleship Potemkin, I think he'd still be pretty excited over that, because you know, you better believe, Sergei Eisenstein read all the great Russian authors, and there were plenty of Russian authors that not everybody in Russia read. Everyone read Dostoevsky, everyone read Tolstoy, but there were other authors that still were there and still being read, but it wasn't like they were totally contemporary um, like some of the Soviet writers. There were very few Soviet writers in that era, but um, and I yeah, I think he understands that. I think Eisenstein would understand that like this is a very brutal existence. And you can't really you can't win as in dominating someone's attention. You really can't. And in, in cinema, that's taken for granted that you can you can do that. And I think film school tries to teach you that, it tries to teach you, yes, you can dominate someone's attention the entire time the movie is going and that's not possible and that's kind of what slow cinema understands and it goes the opposite way and then it's more like you have to like wake up Mm -hmm. at times versus the film is always gaining your attention because that effort gets exhausted and Battleship Potemkin isn't exhausted because it's still seen and even though it's not the most famous film in the world right now I just don't think that's possible Um, even Snow White it's not it's not possible to dominate people's attentions. You can only make something that when the moment is right, people can go to and give it their time. And, you know, like I'm saying, there, there are certain things in this world that deserve your time. And a film cannot make you give your time to it. It just can't. But films can be more strong and they can be clearly strong and attract people to go to them. You know, And that's how you have to go about your life. You have to be very strong and attract people your direction. You have to motivate everything towards you. You can't just, you can't just bring people towards you and go to people on this, very, on this level that everyone can access because you want to have a level of competence. You want to have a level of there's a certain amount of people that will or won't come to you. You know, And that's within films. Films are certain types of people that go to certain types of films. And the strong ones are the ones that they do maintain.
0: Okay, yeah, uh, that concludes our uh, part two of our two-part <laughs> uh, interview with Zach Crossway. Um, thank you so much for listening, and uh, check for back for more uh, podcasts on film. This is Montage for Cinema. You're here with Arian Bepour and Zach Crossway. All right, bye.